Good morning. How are you guys doing? I'm well. Th- oh, I was, you messed my line up. I was going to say I'm good. Thanks for asking, but somebody actually asked. Somebody's polite. Well, uh, to start off this morning, I have a question for you. Who likes to watch renovation shows? I knew there would be lots of you because there's like a billion renovation shows out there. There had to be some people to watch them. Well, my, my wife and I, Kirsten, we don't watch them. We actually just live them instead. Uh, is there anyone in the audience that, that, in the congregation audience, this is not a show, uh, is there anyone in the congregation that likes doing renos? And everyone else, pay attention. These are your friends, okay? So buddy up next to them, ask them your questions, really butter them up. Maybe they'll do a small rental for you. Anyways, no liability to me whatsoever, okay? If there's something goes wrong. But anyways, if you're looking for, for rentals to be done, it's, it's good to have a buddy that knows how to do them. I don't know how to do anything. I'm just saying that. My wife is the reno expert, okay? I'm throwing her under the bus now, but that's okay. Okay, well, why do we like renovations? We don't necessarily enjoy the process, right? They cost a lot. They, uh, they, they uh, are a lot of work. They're a lot of money. But the reason we love them is we love the after, right? Who, we, we love those uh, before and after photos or video compilations. They're all over social media. We love to see somebody have a dramatic weight loss or the dog that was neglected and all of a sudden it's, it's happy because it's in a, in a forever home now. Or we love to see these things of people going through these transformations, these radical changes. We love to see even super, superficial things like houses uh, being renovated to look awesome after. And uh, the pictures, though, they miss, they miss the process. You get to see the beginning, and then you get to see the ends, but you miss the process. And the process is where the most important work is done. It's where the pain is, it's where the cost is that goes into creating the change. And today's scripture is all about a very similar transition. But instead of just superficial uh, renovations or or changes, it's about the greatest and most dramatic change that there is. The change from death to life. And salvation that we're talking about today is for those to bring them into new life who had been previously dead. And so this morning we're looking at an extremely important section of scripture. Now, all the Bible is important, okay? I'm just going to start with that. And the whole letter is great, but it's not just because I'm preaching it. This is probably the most, one, of the, one of the most important sections in the entire book, if not the, the New Testament. It's so important, not to mention it's Pastor Jeremy's favorite verse. And so no pressure on me this morning, okay, guys? So this passage addresses the heart of what it means to be a Christian, the heart of what being a Christian is all about. And so it's bringing us something and someone from death to life. So let's get into it without any further ado. Here is what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in 2, 1 to 10. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our very nature, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. 
But God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. May God bless the reading of his word. So this passage contains or contrasts two different ways of living, either living dead in our sin or living life in Christ. And the focus of the text is all about identity. It shows the identity of who we were who we are in Christ, and who God is. And so who do you want to be? Do you want to be the version of yourself apart from God, or do you want to be the one who God has created you to be? That's the, the, the question that's implied in what Paul is talking about here. So this passage is all about Paul reminding those who have already decided and have already become Christians what their former life was like. It's about knowing who we are apart from God and then who we are in Christ. And from there, how we live from that place of our new identity. So Paul gets straight to this point in this passage, and I will too. The identity of those who walk in sin is a living death. Put simply, people without God are dead. There's your good news of the day. So Paul says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So when you hear Paul in this section, especially the way he starts out, you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. What's your first response? Paul, what did I do to you? Does he, does he seem a little bit harsh? This isn't a super Canadian way to go about starting a conversation, is it? But he goes on. He says, you lived in sin just like everyone else. He doesn't, he doesn't soften it here. He says, obeying the devil. Wait a minute, what? Paul, he's not very Canadian, you know? Well, what do you do? He was, he was anyway, I won't go there. But, uh, so Paul talks about, you used to live in sin. This translation talks about living in sin. Uh, a better translation in many ways says to walk in sin, because live seems like a little bit of a passive, but the, the uh, verbiage here is actually that it's active. You're walking in sin. And so the idea that you're walking in disobedience, it's this active. So Paul points out in these first three verses, he's saying this is your former way of life. All have a sinful past. Everyone is involved and in some way implicit in the evil realm and age that is, surrounds us. We live in the midst, as Christians in the New Testament times, we live in the midst of two over, uh, overlapping identities, two overlapping realms. There's the idea that the kingdom is here, the kingdom of God is here. That's what uh, that Jesus proclaimed when he started his ministry. The kingdom of God is here. 
And yet, it's not fully here. There's still darkness in the world. There's still sin. There's still a struggle with sin. The kingdom of heaven is in-breaking, and it's revealed in moments and in glimpses, but it's not yet complete. Sin is still present and abundant, but the dawn of the new creation is still breaking through. So we're left with this choice every day, and each moment that we live, how will we live? Which realm will we live in? Will we live in the realm of darkness and allow that to identify us? Or will we live in the realm of Jesus in the kingdom of light and of heaven? Which will we live in? Sinfulness or holiness? Indifference or love? Selfishness or selflessness? Now verse 2, uh, Paul talks about we obey, we obey the devil. But most of us actually do uh, evil well enough for ourselves, so there's not necessarily a need, a need to blame the devil. There's the saying, the devil made me do it. It's just as silly as one of our children saying, well, my sister made me do it. Well, did she grab your hands and literally physically make you do it? No. There, there can be temptation that can come, but there's still an implicit choice that you make. And so let's not go around scapegoating and saying, well, the devil made me do it. So the overemphasis on the devil and the power that he has is, is a, a reality that he has. There, there, we do not want to overemphasize the devil. He's a threat to us. Yes, Paul acknowledges that. But the greater concern is our choosing to align with him rather than being overpowered by him. Christians cannot be overcome by the devil. The Christians cannot be overcome by demons. We have the living God inside of us. Nothing can overpower you, but you can choose to sin. You can choose to align yourself with darkness. That's the harsh reality that Paul is talking here. He says that our very identity before Jesus was one of death and following our sinful passions in disobedience with God, and we were on a direct path to destruction. We were dead in our sins. Right from the very beginning, humanity, we were in the garden, we are in this perfect creation, humanity chose to disobey God rather than aligning with him. In the garden, Adam and Eve chose that they wanted their own self-determination, they wanted to make their own decisions, they wanted to be their own boss, they wanted to make their own decisions, and so they disobeyed God, and therefore they died. Now, they didn't literally die in that moment in the same way that a flower, when you cut it off, it doesn't die in that instant. It still looks pretty for a few days. Maybe you can kind of keep it to life, but it is in the process of dying, and in many ways, it is dead. The same way with our uh, beautiful Mother's Day wall, the photo booth that was there last week. It looked beautiful on Sunday morning. Wednesday morning, it looked a little less beautiful. Thursday, it looked... Uh, Pretty pathetic. And this morning when I first came in, I hope Kirsten cleaned it up. I didn't actually check. It looked pretty bad because those flowers were dead. They, they were no longer alive. They didn't even pretend to be alive. They were just completely dead. And so uh, those who have been cut off from God as creator by living in their disobedience, they're dead, but we might not always realize it. Maybe there, there still seems like there's signs of life, but the reality is that outside of God, people are dead. And we have a hard time believing this picture that, that even us or others, that the picture is as bad as Paul says it is. It's easy sometimes to see it, you know, in those other people that are worse than us, you know, those other really bad people out there, but not me, not us, not my friends, not my family. I'm not that bad. Paul, you're being a little harsh. And it's really funny how adults, we often tend to paint things in black and white. Or, sorry, we tend to paint things in gray. 
There you go. Children, though, are black and white. They're literal, concrete thinkers. Something's either good or bad. One of our children especially reminds my wife and I of this constantly. Consistently, I shouldn't be too harsh, but we say we're going to do something later. It's always later as parents, right? We're going to do something later, and you, that's the plan. You're going to do it. Circumstances change. Things happen. And the response we usually get is, you said we were going to do this. You lied. And our response is, no, I didn't lie. Circumstances change. You know, we start painting it with that gray, right? But let's, let's boil it down. Let's be, let's be uh, unsentimental about this. We said we were going to do something. We didn't do it. We were false, correct? So from a kid's perspective, certainly we did lie. There's excuses for that. There's reasonings. But we said we were going to do something. We didn't fall through on a word. Now, as adults, we can understand that things happen, whatever. But that same kind of idea we often apply to every part of our life. Yeah, I did, I did do this thing. I shouldn't have done it. But you know, there were these mitigating circumstances. But as far as children who are literal concrete thinkers, and as far as uh, sin and holiness concerned, there's either, either lining up with God's kingdom and truth, or there's lining up with the kingdom of darkness and sin. That's, that's what it is. There's no gray. There's black and white. But... In the midst of this life, that's hard to realize. But there is that, that harsh, stark reality. If you're not living with Jesus, you're living in darkness. If you're not alive in Christ, you're dead in your sin. That's all there is to it, black and white. You're obeying the devil if you're not obeying Jesus. It's harsh, but it's true. The world is evil. Agreed? Can you really doubt that it's evil? Look at the darkness around us. Think of the current plight that we face every day as humanity. Think of the evils that are inherent in our society. Think of the escapism of drugs and alcohol, the meaninglessness we face of injustice, disease, death. Think of how a billion people, over a billion people live in dire poverty, and yet the world produces more than enough food to feed everyone. War and terrorism are prevalent. To, to call the way the world uh, lives as living death may even be too, uh, too nice of a term, might be too soft of a term. There is evil in the world. It bothers all of us. So we may have a hard time acknowledging that apart from God, we personally are as bad as Paul says we are. But God as the giver of life is the giver of life. So every act that ignores God as the giver of life and gives him credit and worship is sin. That actually contributes to the death around us. To choose to selfishly uh, consume more food than we need rather than while others starve is sin. So all of us are guilty of trying to live without God, to do it on our own, to live for ourselves to have the choices that, that we think are our own to make. And we actually, we're, we fool ourselves into thinking all the choices I make, they're completely my own. I made them on, completely on my own, but we're all actually children and products of our time. The way we think, the things that we value, the things that we consider are normal are all products of the culture that is around us. The home we are raised in, the language that we speak, the society that we live in, the media that we consume, Everything contributes to how we think, what we do, how we're shaped, and the decisions that we make. So unless we're connected directly to the source of all life, and unless we are forgiven for our disobedience, then we are living in 
death. And so Paul says, by our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So in verse 3 here, so some people take exception. Some people, some people take exception with God's wrath and judgment. Some people have a problem with it. Partially, that's a misunderstanding of what love is. Wrath, God's wrath, isn't the opposite of love. The opposite of love is actually indifference. Lactanius, an early Christian author, said, He who does not get angry does not care. When When you see a child suffering, you should be angry. That is injustice. If you do not care for the suffering of others, you do not love. So God, seeing his children around the world suffering, he has to care. He has to be angry. And, and so God is, is not indifferent to the, to the pain in the world around him. He's upset that his children are experiencing and inflicting hurt on others. So he doesn't stay out of the picture. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. Instead, as Romans 5.8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God's love, God's anger, his wrath motivated him so much to move to action, just as all righteous anger does. Anger is not negative. Anger isn't this negative emotion that Canadians, we always think it is. It's actually, it's part of our character. The Bible doesn't say don't get angry. It says do not sin in your anger. So don't punch someone because you're angry, but instead, you see injustice, you should be angry, you should act on it. So a God who wasn't angry at sin and injustice wouldn't be much of a God. He wouldn't truly love or care. And so God gives us, instead, a new way of living. Instead of living in our sin, instead of dying this death, he gives us a way out. We struggle to believe that apart from God, things are as bad as Paul says they are, but sometimes we also struggle to believe that they're as good as he says they can be as well. We, we want to be somewhere in the middle. We, we don't want to get our hopes up too much. We don't, want, we don't think we're that bad. We want to be somewhere in the middle, but God has a great plan for us. So verse 4 begins the great transition that God has offered for us, the way out. Because of God's mercy and his love for us, he created a way where there was no way for us. Once we were dead, but, and that's an important emphasis, that's an important word, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. People in Jesus are brought to life. The first, the first section of, of this section is hard, and it's the reality, but Paul starts there. He says, you used to be dead. Apart from God, there is, there is no hope. But he says, but God brings you back to life because of who God is, because he is so rich in mercy, which is a part of his character. It's part of his identity that he's merciful, and he loves us. He offers us life through Jesus. So until you realize how bad the news is, until you realize how big the problem is, you're not willing to accept the help that you need that comes only through Jesus. They say for for struggles that you're going through, you're not going to change what you're going through unless you experience the pain so deeply that it motivates you to change. And so uh, in verse six, it says, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Our old identity was death, but this new identity that he gives us is one which is united with Jesus. It says he raised us. 
Now, this isn't physical resurrection. It's not literal physical resurrection in that moment. It, that comes later, but it's a spiritual resurrection through the Holy Spirit. So rather than being dead in our sin and our trespasses and being spiritually dead, we now, our lives are infused with the living spirit of Jesus. So that's not based on our merit. It's not based on anything we've done, but on God's character. So God gives us this new identity in him, and in doing so, he shows us who he is. And so the, the verse here also says that we are seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Other translations have this as exalted. We're lifted up with Jesus. Uh, this is about being with Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're physically in heaven right now because we're still on earth. We're still in the midst of the, the, the darkness and the pain uh, that we sometimes experience in this life. But instead, what Paul is pointing towards is that those who have become a Christian, those who are aligned with Jesus, are so integrated with Jesus. They're so part of, he is so a part of who they are that we are connected with Jesus. That when he is lifted up, when he is exalted, when he is glorified by his Father, we too are glorified and exalted with him. This is a fully integrated way of living. We are so bound with him that when he died on the cross we, and when he was raised to life, we were brought into his death so that we could live as well. So as Jesus was exalted into heaven, we too are exalted by the Father in heaven. So when the Father looks at us, he sees the beautiful Son, Jesus. So if you get nothing else from this morning's message, hold on to this thought. Christianity is not a religion of ideas. Instead, Christianity is about active participation in God's redemption of the world through his son, Jesus. It's not about just thinking the right things. It's not about just knowing things. Those are good things. I love learning. I love theology. I love all those things. But it's not just about knowing things about God. It's about actively living and being with him each and every moment of your life. It's about being with Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. Or the old way of saying, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. A relationship grows stronger and stronger as you pour more and more time in it. So being with Jesus, it's a holistic and integrated way of life, known as the way of Jesus. That's why Paul keeps reiterating over and over in this passage that we are united with Christ. We are with Christ. We are in Christ. We are in an active and dynamic relationship with Jesus. So how is all this accomplished? So we, we move from our old identity of death in our sin to a new identity of life in Jesus. How is this all accomplished? Verses 8 to 9 has, has a summary of Paul's whole theology of salvation which is that faith is the means of our salvation. Now, faith is relational, and salvation is a gift from God whom we believe in, but salvation is by grace alone. That's one of the, the tenets, that's one of the core ideas, that's one of the core beliefs of Christianity. It's not just things that we believe, remember? It's not just head knowledge, but that is a core understanding, that salvation is by grace alone. So we are not saved by our works. We are not saved by the good things we do because we were holy in our sin. Our whole identity was sin. Our whole identity was death. We are saved wholly and completely by God's work, by Jesus' work on the cross. So grace is a gift which is not deserved. 
So Paul begins this section by saying uh, that because God is merciful, that, that he does not punish us for our sins when we're in Jesus. So mercy, the word, we use it often, and mercy and grace is interchangeable, but they're, they're slightly different. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We deserved punishment. We deserved death. God chose not to give that to us because he poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross instead. Instead, he gives us grace, and grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Grace is a gift. So mercy is not getting punished. Grace is the gift that you get on top of that. It's like if uh, you disobeyed on Christmas and, you're, and you're, you deserved your parents taking all of your gifts away, and they, maybe you did something really bad. Maybe you stole from them or something. It's them, uh, mercy would be them not uh, punishing you for that by saying, no, you're not punished till you're 16. You can't, you're not grounded till you're 16. We'll, we'll take away that punishment. But then grace would be giving you an even bigger present. Not a good idea, kids that are here, okay? You don't want to test your parents' mercy or salvation. It says don't, don't put your Lord, your God, to the test or don't put your father or mother to the test, Okay. But uh, that's the Adrian translation if you're trying to flip that and find that in there. But, so salvation is by grace alone. It's only by God's grace that we are saved. It's only this gift. So we now live daily in and by God's grace. So we live with Jesus day in, day out. And in verses four to seven, we see God's merciful salvation in Christ and its purpose. And that's where we're landing here. We're gonna go, what do we actually do with this? It's great to learn, it's great to understand, it's great to, to look at passages, but, but how do we actually apply this to our lives? Well, salvation isn't the end goal of faith. It's actually the starting line. So God doesn't save us just to save us. He saves us for a purpose. We often think maybe of monopoly terms that salvation is like this get out of hell free card. You have that in your monopoly kit? No, that's mine. No, salvation, salvation isn't just about not going to hell. Salvation is actually the beginning of a new way of living. It's actually the beginning of the good plans that God has for you. So verse 10 says that we are the result of his activity. We're actually saved by grace to do good works. Salvation for good works. Salvation to live productive lives. So Christians aren't just those who believe something or ascribe to a certain set of beliefs and just say, yeah, I believe that. Instead, it's those who actually live united with Jesus. That we don't just have this passive identity, but this active living faith that requires us to do something. John Stott says, good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its ground of means, but as its consequence in Evident, and evidence. In other words, good works and salvation go completely together. Not to say that you do something to get saved. No, Paul's, the whole point of this is it says you didn't do anything worth saving. You can't boast. You can't brag and be like, woo, I'm saved. Look how amazing I am. No. Paul says you were terrible, but because God is good, because God is, that's the Adrian version, uh, that God is good, God is amazing, that he saves you, he loves you. And then, because you understand that, because you understand the grace, because you understand how terrible you were and how good God is, you are called to action because of that. Your new identity is to continue the work that Jesus is doing. So this, this whole passage has these beautiful contrasts. It says, we were dead, 
now we're alive. We were enslaved, but now we're enthroned. We were objects of wrath, now we're objects of grace. We walked um, among the disobedience, now we're in fellowship with Jesus. We were under Satan's dominion, and now we're in union with Christ. This beautiful transition from death to life. Just as this whole series, we are made new in Jesus. So Paul contrasts our old identity with the new one we received to God from his gift. However, if you talk to any Christian who's honest, this life is hard. We still sometimes have struggles with sin. Sin is present, but it no longer defines who we are. This side of heaven, life will always be a struggle. And Paul warns against dangers of extremism. He says if we, if we uh, lean too much on God's grace, if we, if, we, if we just go to the extreme of saying God is merciful, God is gracious, I can do anything I want and God will forgive me, then you don't really understand what Jesus did. Or if you go the other way and say, well, I'm always going to struggle with sin. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's uh, or sorry, you go the other way and be like, no, no, I, I'm saved. I'm never going to sin again. I'm going to do anything. I, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to, I've, I actually, when I was in Bible college, heard of this one pastor. Uh, one of the other students had come to me and he said, my pastor says he hasn't sinned in five years. <laughs> I went, uh, okay, uh, is his name Jesus? And it, well, that doesn't work either, unless he was five years old. But, um, and he, and I, he said, well, no. And I said, uh, well, uh, are you close to him? He said, well, no. And I said, well, do you know somebody who's really close to him? He said, no, he kind of keeps people at a distance. I'm like, well, that, that's how he can claim that he doesn't sin, because no one knows him well enough to say, you know, you're sinful. <laughs> We're all sinful. We all make mistakes. But our new identity is victory. That's not saying we're always going to have victory in every situation. We still live in the hard uh, dark world. So we still have times where we will slip. We still have hard times where we're going to make mistakes. But in those moments, we lean on God's grace and we ask for forgiveness. We don't run into sin. We run towards God. But we understand that there's this struggle. So there's these dangers. We can either have pride and say, I, I'm perfect. I, I haven't sinned in five years. Or we can have this idea of escapism or the devil made me did or it's not a bad thing. Or this idea of perfectionism and beating ourselves up so much or living in shame if we, if we sin. Instead, God calls us to this life of walking with him. Not in perfection because we're not perfect, he's perfect. But in this, this constant walk with him. Now there's this beautiful idea, and we, we, all talk, we talked about renovation stories. Sometimes there's these, these uh, amazing shows that they'll do it in 48 hours, this crazy thing, and it actually took six months, but they pretend it was a weekend, you know. Um, but the idea of Christian uh, conversion is sometimes there are people that grew up in church, they grew up in a good family, and maybe they couldn't even point to the, the point in their life, the one, the one night or the one time that they, they maybe decided to follow Jesus. Instead, they had this kind of gradual, evolutionary kind of idea of becoming a Christian. Or there's others who maybe uh, one day, all of a sudden, there was a moment, there, this was mine, there was just a moment where I just knew that God spoke to me and that uh, my life was perfect, and I haven't sinned in like 25 years since then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just, uh, no, no, I wasn't perfect, but, uh, but in that moment, I knew who God was. But, uh, but there's this idea of conversion that we move from death to life. Maybe it's a gradual thing for some people. Maybe it's this one instant, and it's not that one is better than the other, 
but they're both this miracle of transition from death to life. We were dead, but now we are alive. So faith isn't just uh, this intellectual idea. It's not just this moment of decision. It's not just this, this intellectual ascent. Faith is actually uh, so much more than that. Faith is this active walk. It's life-changing and leads to a life of union with Jesus. For Paul, it would, it would have been unthinkable for someone to say they have faith in Jesus and yet they would have no evidence of it in their life. It would be unthinkable for anyone to say, well, I go to, I, I go to church, so I'm a Christian. And then you, you watch them the rest of their, their week and you certainly couldn't tell. Paul, Paul says that's unthinkable. It's nonsensical. And if you think about it, it's nonsensical in any other context. If you, if you say you're a gardener and maybe you've read every book that there is, you know all the best fertilizers, you know the best time to plant, which I don't because all our seeds died, or you know the, the latest things about which plants are good for which climate or whatever, but if, I, if you invite me over to your house and you say I'm a gardener and yet your backyard is just full of weeds and you don't actually have a gardener, I would say you're not a gardener. So if you say I'm a Christian, but there's no evidence of it in your life, then, then you'd have to ask, are you really a Christian? For Paul, he says it's nonsensical. There's no idea of actually being a Christian and not living out your faith. It's a complete identity. It's this union with Jesus. So those who have received and experienced God's grace in their lives need to live out their faith and new identity in Jesus. We are new creations. We are made new. And as verse 10 says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things he planned for us long ago. So God gives us a new purpose and a new identity. So rather than living for ourselves, we are called to live like Jesus and to do good things. Now what good things? And how do we know what good things to do? I'm going to give you the pastoral answer. Read your Bible. (laughs) Read the Gospels of Jesus. Look at the things that Jesus did. Look at the people he cared about. Look at the people he talked to. Look at the way that that he presented himself. Put simply, just do the things Jesus did. It's, it's It's not complicated. It's not always easy, but read your Bible, pray, love people, even when it's hard. And uh, everything that Jesus did on earth, remember, he did as a human being inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was unrestricted and unhindered by uh, by sinfulness and the disobedience that we have in our past, but yet he, he gave us an example how we could live our lives also submitted to his Father. And so daily, we, we walk and we speak with God our Father and we can seek ways to be used by the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives to bring hope and healing to others. So if you've been around church for a while, none of these things are new. Read your Bible, pray, and be used by God. It's simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. So let me give just this morning just one key action for you to do this week. Something you can do this week to act on this morning's message. Share your faith with somebody. Or the common term, evangelism. We're all going to do evangelism this week. And maybe you, maybe you cringe at that a little bit or you have this idea of evangelism that you're like, ah, oh, that makes you uncomfortable right away. 
And, and it might be that maybe the, the idea or what you've had or the, the teaching or whatever or the experience that you've had is maybe this, this, uh, this form of evangelism that I've heard and, and uh, been a part of and done myself, unfortunately, uh, is this idea of that forcing conversations to go unnaturally. You try and do the exact uh, order. You try and push it to say this in this way. And I think those things are good and God can use everything. But that's, notice what, what Paul started this message by saying. He didn't say, you are sinners, you're going to hell. He said, you used to do this. You used to live in death. He's not talking to non-Christians, he's talking to Christians. Paul starts there because he's talking to Christians. Paul doesn't start by saying to non-Christians, you're dead. If you read uh, about him when he goes to the city of Corinth, instead he looks for a talking point in the city. And it said he was angry because there were so many idols in the city, but he, he actually notices that there's all these statues and there's one that says to the unknown God. So Paul, instead of confronting them for their idolatry and saying, God says you, you should not have any idols before me, instead he, he starts at the point, that, the connection point. He says, I notice that you guys are very religious. And you, you worship this unknown God. And I'm here to tell you who that unknown God is. He starts in a natural way. He starts by just sharing his life with them, sharing his ideas with them. He doesn't put them off by pushing them to make a decision in that moment. Because that's not necessarily what faith is. Faith is a life of living with Jesus, not just a momentary decision that you make. So what if people experience Christians as the ones joined to the living giver of all life? What if people saw grace extended by those who had received grace? What if people saw faith worth having in you in how you lived your life? That your faith actually impacted the way you live your life every day. Now I know pastors say this all the time, but I'm going to close on this. Uh, just, uh, just one quick illustration of this uh, from our lives. Um, Karison and I had this couple that we used to know um, that they... Um, they were just kind of starting to figure out faith. And uh, we just became friends with them and started uh, just hanging out with them, getting to know them. And it was just a natural thing. And uh, the wife was open, and so eventually Kirsten gave her a Bible, and eventually I gave the husband a Bible. But uh, there wasn't necessarily a time when we, you, we could point and, and write down and say, in this moment we shared Jesus with them. In this exact way, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer with them. But there was this one time... Uh, that, uh, that Kirsten, uh, when she was pregnant with our, our middle child, um, was, went to a, a midwife appointment and they couldn't find a heartbeat and the midwife was, was being very negative and cynical and basically prepare for death. It's, it's probably the worst or whatever. And Kirsten, um, anybody would have been super upset in this, but Kirsten prayed about it and just had this, this unnatural peace from God that it's okay, everything's gonna be okay. But she shared with this friend and said, you know, uh, I just experienced this. Could you pray for me? And she was just kind of starting in her faith. And uh, just the way that Kirsten walked through that and everything turned out all right. Uh, everything was fine. Uh, had follow-up appointments, ultrasounds, everything. Uh, Alethea was fine. But the, the way that Kirsten walked through that and, and the way that, that uh, Kirsten had peace from God in that moment, the way Kirsten just lived her life, uh, actually spoke so powerfully to this woman. That, uh, that she became a Christian and she's still going to church, uh, somewhat a different church or whatever, but, um, but it wasn't anything Kirsten said. It wasn't this moment that she forced. It was just the way she lived her life. 
So it doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be hard. But look for an opportunity you have just to share your life with somebody, just to be with somebody. If you look around in your life and you can't think of any friends that are non-Christians, then your goal this week is to try and make a friend who's not a Christian. Because we, we need to be rubbing shoulders with others. And now I, I gave an example of my wife from this because I'm far from perfect in this. I, I have so much room to grow. But know that, uh, remember when we started, we talked about renovations. Renovations are great. We love the before and after. But there's work to be done in the meantime. You know the best news about uh, the change and everything that Christians go through is that Jesus bore the cost. There's still a struggle. There's still work that we have to do. But he's the one who took the majority of the burden. He's the one that died on the cross to make a way for you to have new life. So if you're here this morning, if you're here today, and you haven't yet started walking with Jesus, maybe you know all the right answers, maybe you know all the things, maybe you, you experience who Jesus is, but you haven't yet lived that daily walk with him. Don't, don't, don't leave here without talking to God. Don't go this week without walking with Jesus. It can just be a simple 30 seconds, five minutes, whatever. Prayer, read your Bible. It's simple, but it's so important. As the uh, worship team leads us, I just want to invite the prayer team to come up. And uh, if, you, if you would like someone to pray for you, they would love to pray for you. So would you, uh, would you join me in standing as we continue to worship? Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the way that you move powerfully, Jesus. God, you are so good. We thank you that you didn't leave us in our sins. You didn't leave us in our brokenness. You didn't leave us to our own devices, Lord, but you came, that you brought us hope, that you brought us salvation, that you made a way where there is no way. And I pray for every single person here this morning and those joining us online or listening to it later, Lord. I pray that we would be challenged uh, to walk with you, Jesus. Not to beat ourselves up for the sins or the mistakes or the poor choices that we have made in the past, Lord but to live in obedience to you each and every day. We thank you, Jesus. In your mighty and precious name we pray.